you have to have a certain amount of, of um, you know, stupidity to get into this. Hi, and welcome to You May Contribute a Verse. I'm Brenna Jennerette, children's old author, mom, rock climber, and co-host of this podcast. My co-host is Josh Munkin, a children's old author, dad, and science communicator. That was today's guest, Charlene Chiwa. I know we all know what she means here. Call it motivation, passion, gumption, insert whatever shun you want. But we've all gotten to the point in our careers where at some point we look around and wonder, what am I doing here? We talk about our early days designing pinup girls, what it means to design a character for a series rather than a standalone book, and why spouses aren't always the best critique partners. So in the spirit of this week's episode, let's just go for it. Here's Charlene's verse. I, I kind of like skimmed through, but I kind of forgot that we had the meeting today. So I was like, uh, let, let's see, um, something, something books. Okay. <laughs> something, something books. That's exactly it. We should rename the podcast that. Yeah. Or at least this episode. I think we've got got the, 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 the episode title down from the very beginning. Yeah. Well, um, I, yeah. I was the one that asked you to be on the podcast uh, because I know you've got a new, you've got two, what, two books coming out this month? Right. Uh, yeah, I have two books for me. I have uh, Amy Wu and The Warm Welcome by Kat Chang and illustrated by me, uh, published by Simon Schuster. And then I have Bye Bye Binary by Eric Geron. And it's by Harper Kids, I think. <laughs> and that's out in next week, I think. Oh, next week. Nice. Oh, wow. That's a super busy month. Also, congratulations. That's a big, that's a big For deal. Sure. Thanks. Well, we, I mean, we don't, we don't only talk to people who have books that are coming out into the world, but I, uh, I appreciate your art. My four-year-old daughter, five-year-old now daughter loves the Amy Wu books. Um, and the opportunity, uh, that I saw on Twitter to ask and see if you wanted to come chat about your experiences and history and all that, uh, seemed too good to pass up. So, all we do here is just have a very unstructured sort of chat about who you are and what kind of a creator you you are and aspire to be and personal history and all that. Cool. Cool. Yeah, we're we're really happy to have you. I'm super excited. I was just perusing through your website real quick before we jumped on just to sort of refresh myself. Um, and I had totally forgotten that you also illustrated Pinky Promises, right? Oh, yeah. For, I mean, that right there is that is, a, you know, enough to like put you on the map, but there's not just that there's like rows and rows of stuff that you've illustrated. And it's all, it's all like really super um, vibrant and fun, which like drew me in right away. Cause I love, I love the illustrations, especially. So I have, I do have this one. I was not able to get my hands on the other ones, but um, so this is Amy Wu and the perfect bow, um, which yeah, I love the illustrations. They're so fun and colorful and it just makes you, and it makes you want to like get in there and be a part of it. So I also really appreciate that there's a recipe at the back, which I know is the the author's doing. But I think that's really cool to get more involved with with your kid afterwards. Because my kid's always like, "Oh, can we do that? Can we can we do what just happened in the book?" Oftentimes you can't because it's like slaying dragons and stuff. But like this is actually reasonable. We could actually make these in the kitchen. That would be okay. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that the uh, the recipe at the back of the book, like nobody really like knows this, but like that's actually my idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was. Oh, it was. Yeah. yeah, we'd uh, had the book, and I, I'm pretty sure that the original didn't have a activity at the back. And then I kind of 
think I mentioned, I'm sorry, Kat, if this is, my memory is wrong, but <laughs> I think I suggested it to like the, um, the publisher, the editor. And I said like, you know, it's, it's a book with cooking in it. Like it would be nice to like have a cooking thing, a recipe. Uh, and I think they went back to Kat and said like, can you write up a recipe? And then she talked to her, um, parents, I think, and, and that came up with like her family recipe for like the, uh, the pao. And I think it's worked out very well because people do seem to really enjoy trying to like make the thousand on their own. Um, the book came out just before uh, quarantine hit. So, you know, the, the bow making as it says in the book is an all day activity. So when quarantine hit, everybody was like, well, we're stuck at home. So gee, this takes up a lot of time. So cool. <laughs> what a better way to ki kill some time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've seen some pictures of people making, you know, their, their bows with, uh, their kids and stuff. It's always really nice to see, you know, what, um, what they make. And some people also do, uh, the like plasticine, uh, bow sort of activities with their children. And it, it's really nice to see that people engage with the interactive part of the books. Do you, so f first point. Uh, I, I will cop to being one of the people who read Perfect Bow and then ended up making Bow. It wasn't an all-day activity because my kids do not have that sort of attention span. Uh, I used uh, pre-made pulled pork uh, that I had made the day prior, uh, which is part of the you know part of the the, the the instruction to make the meat filling the day prior. But um, uh, it uh, I had an Amy Wu sort of experience with it. But um, <clears throat> the question the question that I had is how like you. There are lots of close-up shots of, you know, Amy making the bow and packing it in and things that really give you a sense for what the process is like. How much, how much do you think about how readers are going to be living that experience and reading it when you're doing the illustrations? Um, well, for Perfect Bow, there was... I can't remember when we came up with the uh, the recipe, whether before it was uh, before I started drawing or after I started drawing. Um, I think my focus was more on the what the text was conveying. And also, I don't do this for many of the other books, but I did actually make Bao for the uh, as like research for mm -hmm. uh, Perfect Bao. And um, I've eaten bao all my life, but I grew up in Singapore. Bao is really easy to like find there. Like you know, you can go to any you know stall or shop, and there will be like the hot cupboard thing that they store the bao in to keep it warm. And uh, so yeah, nobody really like needs to make their own bao because you can just like go anywhere and buy it. Mm -hmm. So um you know now i'm in canada and it's like a lot harder to find fresh bao so i was like okay fine let's just try and like make bao and see how hard it is to do um so yeah when i was making it it was like wow this is like really hard and like my bao really like you know was horrible um the i think the uh mangle kind of like bao that that amy makes is kind of based on the one that i made it was like just like unfolded and and overstuffed <laughs> and everything so i was like well you know at least i got like photo ref to like work off that um, lived experience right yeah so um yeah i think that also i channeled my 
feelings and frustration while making the bow into like Amy's expressions while she was like trying to like put it together and also like the feeling of like yeah I can do this and it's like oh actually you know this is like kind of hard sort of thing. <laughs> I like I like at the end though or not maybe not at the end but like three quarters of the way through and she makes she makes the bow it's not perfect but it still tastes really good right so like, I feel like that's a great takeaway because it's sort of like, well, I mean, what's the worst that can happen, right? Like you put all these delicious ingredients together and it may not look super rad, but it usually tastes good, right? That's usually how I go into baking because I'm not a baker. Like I can cook, but that's all, you know, cooking is sort of like you add something here and you take away there and you can like always fix it, but you can't do that with baking because it's more of a science. So like if you mess up with like the baking powder, like you're done for, it's over. You can't really fix that. But I'm like, well... If it's just dough and we're, you know, essentially putting in a bunch of like cinnamon and sugar, I mean, how bad could it really be? Right. So like, I'm always like, it's going to be fine. It'll taste totally fine. Everyone's going to be, it's going to be okay. But um, yeah, making bao seemed very um, intimidating. We did not do that yet. <laughs> I have, speaking of the editing process and publication process, I mean, you're on what with Warm Welcome book, book three in the Amy Wu saga. How do you, we don't talk to, to a lot of creators who are parts of these series mm -hmm. where characters have a multi-book life. So how do you, how do you land that? Is that part of the plan from the get-go, from the, the point at which you signed on with Perfect Bao? For Amy Wu, no, it was originally one book. And if you look at the artwork, um, I think you'll notice that the art, if you look closely, to me anyway, the art for the first book is a little bit different from the other books uh, because I thought originally that it was a standalone title. And so I designed the characters, but I'd also given myself, you know, the liberty of like, you know, the, kind of like deforming them a little bit to like bring out her expressions and also um, the proportions of her uh, parents and, and grandma uh, kind of scaled for that story. Uh, when Perfect Bow came out, or slightly before it came out, I think it must have gotten quite a lot of attention from pre-orders. So they approached us and said, do you want to do another book? And I was like, oh, okay, sure, you know. Um, but I hadn't really designed the characters to be a uh, part of a series. So I sort of had to meet do with what I had designed and try and adapt it. Cat in Patchwork Dragon introduced more characters. Um, I believe Amy's friends, uh, Willa and Sam, join her in the story. And then there are a few more classmates as well as her teacher, Miss Mary. So it was kind of an impromptu thing of like, okay, now I have to like make more characters who weren't part of like the original book and sort of fit them in. Um, so uh, that that's one way to like kind of go about it. And it's also like the, the second book was uh, commissioned and started well over a year after the uh, first book was completed and when, when I'm not planning on like doing a sequel it's sort of like okay what did I do <laughs> previously like not just like how did I design characters but also like what brushes did I use to 
you know, do uh, the textures and everything. Mm -hmm. So I had to sort of go back at, and look at the work and try and, you know, reverse engineer things to sort of be like, okay, so this is what, you know, the colors that I use, this is what the uh, textures that I use, this is the thing is what brushes I used. Um, so, so that's how Amy was uh, developed. Then after the second book, they said, did you want to do a third book? And I was like, okay. And I still had some of the stuff that I uh, kind of, for, you know, kind of put together for the second book. So I kind of reused that for the third book to sort of guide where, you know, the proportions of the characters and stuff. Um, and we, we did just complete the fourth book. And so the oh, same wow. yeah, the fourth book is, uh, the art book has been completed. Um, it is scheduled for publication next year. I think I'm not sure whether we are doing a fifth book. It would be nice, but we haven't heard anything about it yet. <laughs> Put it on the wish list. Yeah. Oh, wow. So. Um, there is another book series that I'm working on right now. Uh, it's a early reader chapter book, sort of like Princess in Black, but not the same story, obviously. Uh, that's meant to be a series, so the characters have been designed from the start to be, you know, more consistent. Um, and I'm hoping that that will, yeah, you know, that will carry... I can just reuse the initial work that I did for the characters in the subsequent books later. Although I'm pretty sure that there will be more uh, characters introduced in the subsequent books for this series, and those characters have not been written yet, so obviously I can't design them. So I will just have to um, figure it out as I go along. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't really think about the sort of forensics that you would have to do if you don't plan for having a multi-book series. I do love the notion of a book that came out right before the pandemic started, you having to plan for the proportions of the parents to change. Because <laughs> it's a life that a lot of us are living right now. <laughs> maybe, right, not the same, right. maybe not the same proportions that you're talking about, but uh, it's, just, <laughs> it's interesting. Well, so yeah, that's really interesting to me too. What you're saying about how if you didn't you didn't know that it was going to be a series, and therefore you did the characters differently than you would have had you known it was a series. So just just for an example, because I'm curious, and because I don't illustrate, so I don't I don't quite know you know what the process is. But so what might you have done differently if you had known that Amy was going to be part of a series? Like, would you have made her just more? Um, like easier to replicate? Is that kind of what you're looking for for a series? Or is it like some some other sort of design? Or what do you what do you try to do there? I think a lot of it is, you know, in my headspace, how the character is supposed to be and behave and stuff. Um, you know, I I know I designed Amy I'm I'm just looking off to my wall because I actually have um her designs stuck up there. They've been I think this is the second or third version of the printout because my cat keeps on like pulling them off the uh, wall <laughs> um, yeah the, the design for amy and her family has been stuck on my wall for like the last four years <laughs> because they oh, just wow. keep on making extra books and yeah I'm like well i guess i'll just leave it up there um so <laughs> her character sheet is is actually more animated than uh a lot of like the other character sheets that i do 
there's a more of a focus on Amy's expressions and less of a concern about her consistency and proportions. Um, and I originally did that because, yeah, I thought it was just one book and I wanted to focus on that. Uh, had I known that it was going to be a series, I think I would have um, done like more full turnarounds and had things planned out like how I'm doing now so that I can sort of portion drawings and stuff so that I have an easier time maintaining consistency of the character in the various books. Um, that said, even though I did prepare some stuff, you know, I think Amy looks slightly different in like every book. <laughs> and, you know, part of me is like, it's not, you know, it's not, I don't know, part of me worries that it, she doesn't look consistent enough. But then part of me was also like, you know, people are probably just going to like see the book. And, and if kids can recognize that it's Amy and they enjoy the story, then that's good enough for me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's my take is that your 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 primary audience is not going to be too terribly discerning about their proportions. And you're, you know, I, I can say as someone who's, you know, currently looking at your website, your your artwork is consistent enough and on brand enough, I think, to to be recognizably Amy Wu, no matter which. Yeah. It's in, for sure. yeah, and the editor seems to have no problem, right? Yeah, because right. Yeah. it's possible. I mean, you're Nobody's already on four that. books, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so know, if anything that's like really off, they will like come back to me and say like, oh, could you, you know, change this, change that. There's always like edits before the book goes to like final publication. And I think I rely quite a bit on my art directors and graphic designers to help spot things because as the artist sometimes it's really difficult to spot inconsistencies with your own work I think and it's also difficult to rely on somebody who's not an artist like my husband to sort of tell me whether <laughs> things are okay or not because he just looks at everything and it's like yeah it looks fine it's like do you even know what you're looking at? It's like, Why do I even ask you? Yeah. Are we throwing spouses under the bus? Because I have some stuff to say. <laughs> sure. I'm let's, not. I, I'm just kidding. The two of you are free to do that. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. I mean, he's a great guy and he's a writer as well. You know, he's, he writes adult um, science fiction, fantasy sort of like books, but like, you know, he has like really wacky ideas. Um <laughs> And sometimes he's got a, you know, he, sometimes it's good relying on him for feedback. Like, you know, like, do you know what this thing is? And it's like, yeah, it's a cat or something. It's like, okay, so it kind of passes like the everyman sort of test. Nice. But when it comes to more, you know, things that like, I guess, I don't like saying it, but like maybe, you know, require a bit of an artist's eye sort of thing. Then it's like, okay, I kind of trust my art director a little bit more to sort of spot things that are really off and also to tell me in a in a way that I can understand what to do about it because you know art directors always know how to convey the change to me where it's like the head is too big can you make it 10% smaller you know mm. the arm looks like it's you know contorted in a way that doesn't look you know, whatever, you know, stuff like that. They'll, they'll be able to articulate um, what is wrong with the thing or not working and work with me to 
of find a visual solution. When people are not visually um, familiar with like talking about visuals, usually the comment comes back as something's not quite right here. It's like, okay, and not really actionable feedback, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like actionable is something that I like. I don't mind changes. I don't mind edits, but I need to know what is wrong and what do you want me to do about it? Because I cannot stand when people tell me something is like not working, but they're like, well, you know, you're the expert. We leave it up to you to figure out. It's like, you know, I mean, I could like look at a house and go like, yeah, this is like not quite right. And if I cannot tell the architect why it's not quite right, he's just going to be like, well, okay. Yeah. Not not helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's the same same with critique groups. I mean, they're essential, you know, as a writer, especially because so just to clear it up. So, yeah, my husband is great and he is very good at critiquing. I ha I am the problem in the situation because I don't like have I don't like him critiquing my stuff. It's like too personal. It's like too close to home. So I'm just we decided a long time ago it was not a good idea. And so now his new role is just to be my hype man. So he just tells me everything is awesome and that I'm great and I'm the best writer and it works out much better. We have a smoke machine. There's a win thing. He announces me when I come oh, into a room. I have my own yeah, I have my own soundtrack. No, I'm just kidding. But it works. It works much better that way. It's. It was like, and it. It was only like a couple of times when I was first starting out, and I needed someone to look at stuff. And I was like, okay, like, what do you think about this? And he'd, you know, he'd make a face like he was thinking about it. But then again, right? It's not actionable. Like he could tell something was missing or wrong, but he couldn't put his finger on it, which wasn't helpful. And then it was just like, I was like, I need a critique group, right? So that you know that. That cleared it up definitely like if you can have somebody in your house be your critique partner like that's awesome like i know betsy bird and her husband work great together because he is an editor and a writer and she's a writer and they like you know they work really well together in that in that setting but um you know not everyone can manage that <laughs> i mean you know on the flip side of things like i have tried to beta read and critique like his novels and after the last, I don't know, at some point I was like, you know what, I think maybe I'm not being very helpful here because like, I don't really know how to give good feedback on like novels. And then I think he tries to like make me happy and I'm like, okay, well, making me happy, I don't know, these books don't seem to like appeal to like the acquiring editors and I'm not the acquiring editor. So maybe just you know, I'm just not going to give to you. <laughs> it, it is what it is. Also, I do not know anything about spaceships and explosions. So whatever. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a hard line. <laughs> I'm adding, I, I have to tell you, Charlene, I'm adding to the Google results for this. This is always a weird result to have pop up on Google. I'm Googling Charlene Chua husband. Because <laughs> I want to know because I am the spaceships and explosions type of person. <laughs> really? Does, does any result show up? No, no, I did not find out from my girl, my my Google during our conversation, at least. Oh well, my husband's name is Wayne Santos. His website is waynesantos.com. He's the author of uh, the Chimera Code, which is his novel. It's like a cyberpunk fantasy sort of novel. Oh, cool. Um, and he has a novella called the uh, what was it? Some. Something, oh dear, I forgot the title. He's going to kill me. He's um, not going to listen to this. It's okay. <laughs> it's based on Filipino folklore, and it's a very cute novella that oh, is cool. has like the uh, Filipino goddess and these 
in the in the actual folklore there are like these two guys that like keep on like wanting to like date her or something <laughs> and the uh the whole novella story is kind of like a retelling of that so this is like pretty cute i'm looking at his website now the difficult loves of maria makiling yes there you go <laughs> we got it right <laughs> okay well i got like her name i remember her name i didn't remember the first part <laughs> <laughs> that's nice um, yeah, but we're nice. here to talk about you and not your husband, Wayne. <laughs> so I should tell you, you're you are um, my second uh, Singaporean guest on the podcast. Uh, Am I? I talked to, yeah, I talked to uh, a, a Singaporean kid lit writer who still lives in Singapore, and it was a very difficult uh, sort of like remote connection that we had a couple of years ago. She and I had gone to uh, gone to college together, and she ended up being a journalist and working in uh, in kid lit as well. So happy to have you again or not new again but ha happy to have a second singaporean guest <laughs> go into the archives and listen to this sort of like awkward early days of a podcast episode between the two of us but podcasts are like so interesting like listening you know i stopped listening to uh podcasts like a, a couple months ago but before that i was listening quite a bit last year um i should get back to it because I was listening on Spotify and then at one point Spotify was doing like, you know, some questionable things. So I kind of like stopped, but I did enjoy quite a few podcasts and it's always very interesting listening to like the earlier episodes and then listening to the later episodes. And yeah, I always kind of like wondered like how that goes. Like what, what do you do? Like you start and then is it simply like, you know, you get better equipment or you know you sort of like develop a rhythm or a cadence or something as time goes by and um yeah first of all uh for the first couple of years of doing this podcast there was there was no brenna and i was doing it flying solo or er, what no brenna don't look at me like that i know you were thinking it too don't worry though josh and i are in it for the long run but enough about that it's time for this week's cookie break where each week we do a bite-sized review of a book we loved in case this author manages to be a blind spot for you, this week Josh recommends Bob Shea's Kid Sheriff and the Terrible Toads, a spaghetti western replete with cattle smooching, dinosaur facts, and a stony-faced hero riding into the sunset for three days. It's a great read aloud, completely silly, and absolutely demands your best grovelly drawl. A tip of the cowboy hat to Bob and illustrator Lane Smith. This week I chose Norton and the Bear by Gabriel Evans. Remember copying an older sibling or best friend simply because you thought they were great? Well, this is the situation Norton finds himself in until he can't take it any longer and screams the battle cry of copied kids everywhere. Stop copying me! But in an unexpected turn, Gabriel's charming illustrations and Norton's exquisite fashion sense convince the reader to root for Bear. This sweet story about admiration and friendship is a must read. Check out the show notes for links of the authors and illustrators and where to buy the books. Make sure to get your own reviews or library requests in, and if you really want to cover all your bases, enter those reviews and requests into the monthly Chewy Reviewy drawing. And remember, reviews and requests are the number one thing that can help an author's sales. And now, back to our show. But I, I mean, the, the analogy is, you know, you did your first Amy Wu book and didn't necessarily keep track of the brushes you use, the proportions, doing turnarounds and all that. Same thing for early days of a podcast. You kind of figure it out as you go, kind of track it back and, you know, you get a better mic uh, and better, a better workflow. So 
it evolves over time, but the mm. early stuff's always rough. So is it better to like start listening to a podcast from like the first episode or the latest episode? In our case, the latest episode. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I would highly recommend May You Contribute a Verse. You should you should go back into the archives to listen to all. <laughs> I think it depends, too, you know, on, on what podcast you're listening to and who's doing it. Because I think, like, those true crime podcasts, like, some of those, they have, you know, they're, like, a set series. They have a set number of episodes. Um and they've done like years of research, right? It's like four years of research and they're journalists and whatever. And they're like comfortable talking to people about this stuff. And he, they have like a whole script and a workflow and things have been edited and polished and whatever. And so those are fine. Plus to get the whole story, you've got to start from the beginning. But if you're just jumping into something too, like like Betsy Bird, like I love her podcast, but she's been doing it for however many years. So there's like 200 plus episodes and I was like man I really like Betsy Bird but I don't have that kind of time you know so I just like started where 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 I found her and then like listened you know from that point so I I have like this when I pick up a podcast I kind of like for some reason I'm like I have to start at the start and then like binge it until the end so usually I um I'll, I'll sort of like hear about like I don't know like like mysteries and folklore or something like that so then i'll be like oh this sounds interesting and then usually i'll put on the first one and I'll be like i can't even hear it's really muffled <laughs> right yeah exactly <laughs> and then i'll have to like sort of sit through like you know five episodes or so before it sort of like starts kind of getting its act together and um then i but i feel bad about like you know skipping through the first you know few episodes um i don't know that's just my thing with yeah. podcasts. I don't know well, why. here i'm gonna try and artfully turn it back to talking about you and about illustration sure. <laughs> i will say in the early days of the of this podcast it even it had a different name in its early days part of the same feed but i did have some some solid conversations back in those days the two unrelated light illustrators steve light and kelly light um some great insights coming out of those conversations um but i I'm curious how, so I want to go back to sort of your, your own history and how you came to Kid Lit. The broad strokes of it, to use an illustrator pun, I guess, are, you know, Singapore to Canada. Um, you worked as a web designer and graphic designer, right? A long time ago, yeah. What was that transition like? Or what was that work like in, in, in the way that it sort of informed your move to Kid Lit? Well, it's been a very strange journey to Kidlit for me because I didn't really start off wanting to be a Kidlit illustrator. Um, although in retrospect, it probably all the signs were probably there. Um, so I, I started off wanting to be an illustrator, and I wanted to get into illustration, study illustration when I was in my teens. Back then, I was living in Singapore, and there was no art school that had illustration as a degree program. Yeah, this is this is just going to be a very long-winded answer. So yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, when when I was young uh, in Singapore, there was no art school with the illustration program. There were two art schools, uh, but they both only had fine arts and graphic design degrees. I wanted then to go to the UK to study illustration, but 
even back then in the 90s, it was pretty expensive and my family wasn't well off. So we looked into the costs and I distinctly remember thinking to myself, well, even if I get a loan from the bank, that'll cover the tuition, but not really the living expenses. And I would have to get a job and pay back the loan afterwards, probably over like 10 years. And I didn't, you know, want to spend the next 10 years stuck in Singapore, um, doing some job that I didn't like to pay back this loan. So I enrolled in a diploma program that did uh, visual communications. I did about a year and a half and didn't really work out. So I dropped out and then I got a job because this was like late nineties and it was a lot easier to get a job back then, I guess. Um, so I started, you know, working in like design and, uh, stuff. Interestingly, the first job that I got was with a company that did educational CD-ROMs. And part of the reason I got hired is because they had a project that was a training CD-ROM for an insurance company and they needed illustrations to go with that. They were like cartoon illustrations of like, you know, insurance agents and, and money symbols and stuff like that. It's actually closer to like children's art than, you know, like formal, uh, like editorial illustration. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I, I went into work for a few years and, and I kind of stopped drawing, um, kind of got really depressed. And <laughs> then I, I met my future husband and, you know, he, he kind of encouraged me. He was like, well, if you want to like, you know, try illustrating as a career, you should go for it. So um, I think after sometime I, I started drawing again and then kind of, you know, foolishly thought like, yeah, okay, this portfolio is good enough to see like what happens with it. Like all of us do. That's right. Yeah. There, there's like a, uh, I think there's, you have to have a certain amount of, of, um, you know, stupidity to <laughs> get into this. You'd be like, you know, yeah, you know, this, this stuff is good enough. It's like, you know, if somebody else can get published, then like I can do, you know, I can get a job too. You know? Yeah, right. Like they make it look so easy. What's the big deal? I can just Again, do that. I, yeah. <laughs> I've said this before in other conversations. I'm a white man. It's worked for us for a long, long time. Uh, <laughs> applying ourselves towards things at which we are underqualified. <laughs> It's, um, hey, you know, sometimes it works. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I kind of like sent out some stuff. I, and somehow or other, I got uh, a job from one of the uh, magazines in Singapore. Um, it was with Chris Flyer, which was Singapore Airlines in-flight magazine at the time. So it was like pretty cool, you know, first job. Yeah. getting like kind of a big name sort of thing. Um, and, you know, I, I did that and I thought like, oh, cool, you know, like this thing is going to work out. Um, and and then it kind of like didn't. <laughs> so I was like, oh, boy, plus some other things. I kind of like was like, OK, I, I guess I got to get back to my day job. And uh, so then I, I went back to being a graphic designer for a short period of time. But then the freelance kind of picked up 
And, you know, I think what kind of like did keep me afloat, even though I refused to recognize it at the time, is that I started getting more jobs regularly from like the children's magazines in Singapore. Mm. Um, and they, you know, needed like little illustrations for the magazine, um, things to go along with like, you know, funny puzzles and, and like, you know, funny stories and uh, little like poems and stuff. And because it was a children's magazine, the whole thing is illustrated. So it was much more regular than the adult magazines that um, producing at the time. So I kind of lucked into that. And also because of the Singapore, the way that the magazines were in Singapore, they're really only like two big publishers and they controlled like the majority of the local magazines. So when you kind of get in with one of them, you know, one magazine, then if the art director kind of likes working with you, they'll probably like suggest you to like their other magazines and children's is kind of adjacent to like parenting magazines and motherhood sort of like magazines. So I kind of, and, and health, to a, you know, more further adjacent, but kind of still in the same general sort of like family, children, lifestyle sort of like uh, category. So I kind of like started getting, you know, more regular work in that and then also doing uh, other kinds of like general illustration. Um, when, When I started out, really, I wanted to do, what I actually wanted to do was like, of pinup girls <laughs> and like a lot of my earlier work was like that sort of you know kind of cheesecake sort of illustration um but yeah as as time went by it was just like more children's stuff and my first children's book julie black belt actually came about because of like one of my pinup girls <laughs> so oh that's so funny yeah, it is. It, um, so I'd done like a illustration for Maxim Singapore, which was a, uh, I don't know whether you have that around here, but it, it was kind of like a, uh, like a, a lad mag, a magazine for like guys, kind of like, like Esquire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I'd done an illustration for that and there was a series about, uh, I can't remember what, but anyway, the illustration was like uh, in an Asian woman in like a grisly yellow jumpsuit sort of thing. Uh, and then the publisher and writer of uh, Julie Blackwell had seen that and he was, he got in touch with me. Uh, his name is Oliver Chin. He's with the Medium Publishing in San Francisco. And they are a small um publisher that kind of focuses on Asian American content. This was back in like 2007, I think. And he got in touch with me and said like, well, I saw this image and like, I think it's kind of appropriate for a, uh, it's kind of got the, the vibe of like a children's book that I am like looking to get an illustrator on and publish. Um, and would you be interested? And obviously like, you know, make it like, a kid and, make a know, kid accessible and not a pinup right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um so i at the time i wasn't really doing you know i wasn't doing children's books and i was not really into doing stuff for kids but i was like well you know sure i've never done any 
Sheldon's book before, and um, and let's let's try it. So it was like a great learning experience, and I still like the story. Um, it's been many years, uh, and it took me a really long time to do that that book because I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know anybody else was doing children's books at the time, um, you know. So so yeah, I think the sketches for that might have been on paper before I started using like a Cintiq for drawing. Oh, wow. So, so ancient. Yeah. <laughs> and the, uh, I was working a lot in um, vector art at the time. So all the artwork for that one was done in um, Illustrator. Yeah. So so I did that in 2007, I think, or maybe 2006. And um, I'm trying to remember whether that was the first. Like, no, that was, that was also the year that I moved to Canada. And I think that part of the reason why I said okay to the book is because I needed something to like work on in the in between when I was like moving and stuff. You know, it, I had the time and the opportunity to work on it. And after that, I actually was like, I thought to myself, I'm never doing another children's book because it took so long. And unfortunately, <laughs> the budget was not like very high. And I was like, how does anybody do this and like not go bankrupt? That's a question we all keep asking ourselves, right? <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> it's uh yeah, it, it's rough when when you're starting out and you're spending like, you know, many months on it and you're not getting a very big budget. It's like yeah, it's very rough. So that was published in 2008 and I was like I also didn't know how to like promote it or anything. So then I didn't do another book until Oliver wanted to ask me whether I wanted to do a sequel in like 2000 and 13 12 to 13 again at that time you know i had had some you know success quite big success in transitioning over to like illustration in canada and north america um versus singapore it was all kind of not too bad but then it also coincided with a period of my life that was like not too great so i did the second book in that period in 2015 or so the our director at Emedium contacted me, and Emedium is a specialty publisher in Canada that focuses on stories from the Inuit community up north. They're kind of interesting because they also um, like to work with illustrators that aren't specifically uh, Inuit or First Nations or Indigenous. I was told, you know, that 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 it would be they would work closely with me on it uh, and make sure that these stories were respectful and appropriate for like the culture that was being uh, written about. And uh, so, yeah, he approached me and asked me whether I was interested in doing a book with them. And that book eventually became Fishing with Grandma. And it was about a uh, Inuit grandma and taking her grandkids out and teaching them how to do ice fishing uh, so it was it was very fun to draw um, and at the time I think I felt like I wanted to go more into children's work I did that and the book came out and it, it, it did pretty well I think it still does pretty well it resonates quite well with um, the audience it has good themes and you know the grandma is like People always like to see grandmas like are capable in your book. This grandma is like, you know, she she rides a, a 
is it an ATV? You know, those those little buggy things? Uh-huh, yeah. And, and she takes the kids out, like, ice fishing and teaches them these life skills and stuff. So she's, like, pretty cool grandma. Um, yeah, so then we started working on several more books. And I worked on, I can't remember, quite a few books uh, with Inhabit Media and their subsidiary Inhabit um, Education. Uh, that eventually led to me meeting up with my agent which is another like really funny story <laughs> but uh then i signed on with um tracy and bookends and that then pretty much kicked off the um kid lit thing i still remember like signing with tracy and and saying like okay you know you're representing me for for like the book business and i'll be keeping everything else right so like if i have a advertising project or something i don't need to go for you it's like yeah yeah you know I'm, I'm only representing you for like side things and i was like okay cool because then if this doesn't work out then i have something to fall back on but then as, as the way that you know life goes and stuff like that i think it's been hmm, well over five years now that i've been with her and uh yeah now i'm just like doing books <laughs> full time <laughs> i don't really have much time to do much else outside of books really. yeah it's worked out it's good that you had safety but it's worked out yeah it, it's interesting hearing he, having creators walk through these stories because they're they're never like i set my sights on something and i achieved it it's more like i kind of i didn't realize what was out there or what was what was possible uh until i kind of like said yes to a bunch of ideas and then here we are today um, so it's interesting that just sort of exploring and figuring out what, what works is, is what got you to, I think there are some people that, you know, from the get go are like, I want to be a children's illustrator. And then eventually they do get there and it's like, well, you know, good job, good for you. And, and you know, stuff. <laughs> right. I'm a bit envious that you kind of figured it out so early and like went for it. So, okay. But you know, you do you, um, but for myself, yeah, it's been actually a very big lifelong maybe not lifelong but like a very long journey to like self-acceptance and you know when i was younger the, i did want to be an illustrator but i also i kind of wanted to like get into be a comic illustrator um specifically and uh and and also do the the pinups thing i mean those two are kind of like linked it really took me quite a bit of my adult life to sort of come to terms with you know what I like to see like, you know, in art and what I like to create in art are two different things. And also like what I like to create in art and what brings me money <laughs> with art is like another thing too. Right. You know, those three things are very, are very different. And, and sometimes I have to like, you know, remember to kind of try and explain that to like, students or other people that are getting started it's like what what do you like to see what do you like to make and what actually pays out for you with your art can be three different things and you have to learn to you know to sort of make peace with that yeah the venn diagram where all three of those line up is like real small right so it, it works out for some people right mm -hmm. but you know that's kind of like the minority of a minority of a minority kind of thing because 
being an illustrator in the first place and, and surviving and thriving in your career is difficult enough as it is. And, you know, being an illustrator of a successful illustrator in your specific niche interests, you know, I always think that even of the people that you see who are highly successful, you know, concept art or whatever, and, you know, they do like whatever it is that they're, they're good at. Sometimes I like really wonder is like, is that really the thing that, you know, you really specifically like, or is like, you know, you have very, very, very niche interests. Like you really only wanted to paint like, you know, vampires for your entire career. But it's like, you you know, by wanting to paint vampires, you're good at also doing like elves and, you know, knights and, um, you know, all of these other things and, and monsters. And, and like, that's kind of like what gets you hired and that's what pays the bills. That's what keeps on bringing in the jobs. Occasionally you get to do a vampire, but you know, you don't get to sit down and do vampires like all the time. It's an interesting analogy. Like you just have a, such a passion for vampires. <laughs> <laughs> so are we coming to the, the conclusion that your, your passion is pinups, but what pays the bills is children's books? <laughs> I thought for a long time, and I think it was true for a long time that my passion was pinups, but interests change as you get older and well it does for me anyway i think my interests change my outlook on things change how i perceive myself and my world change and while i still enjoy doing pinup or art not in my kidlet style but in my other style um i feel like it's kind of limited that i started out you know really wanting to draw pinups and, and comics and you know as I went along I kind of like always had this this struggle between you know wanting to draw a you know hot character and telling a story and I feel like those two forces are like really in conflict with one another because when I want to create a character that looks appealing to me the focus is really on on that but when you have a character that is you know, appealing, then what are they doing? It's really hard to like, tell a story because the story, you know, takes precedence over how good the character looks. At least, you know, that's how my brain seems to like figure it. And um, when it comes to storytelling, I find it a lot easier to, and, and fun, you know, really importantly, it's much more fun me to tell stories with characters that aren't supposed to be hot or cool and I kind of discovered that with children's books since especially since like the characters are not supposed to be like hot or cool anyway not a lot of sexy right know? yeah yeah <laughs> they, they're just supposed to be like fun kids and like kind of goofy sometimes mm-hmm. and the more I can make a character goofy the better I can tell the story really um and I kind of found that, yeah, you know, I like that too. And it's kind of more interesting than simply drawing a good looking character all the time, standing around looking good, <laughs> hmm. which you I find- get a, You get enough of the good looking people after a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, when I yeah. was younger too, I, I just wanted to like do that. But then as I got older, somehow it, it just, it just changed and like, 
yeah, it's just like, it's not that interesting anymore to just focus on, you know, this, this idea of like the, the good looking character and, you know, what are they doing? What are they seeing? What are they, you know, and what is, what is good looking, you know, good looking is kind of very limited to just one aspect. But when you have a character come to life, then there, you know, an interesting character has multiple uh, facets. You know, they they have emotions, they respond to things. Um, you know, they scowl, they smile, they you know, they get confused. They like go here, do there, jump, crouch. Um, and, and they do all of these things that then make them interesting. Whereas when you have a, a character that you're concerned with, like looking good, you know, if you draw them scowling or something, it's like your your brain. You might always have to look at yeah, exactly. You're not looking very like attractive, like right now. You know, you get kind of like fixated on like how the character ought to look when when they're being attractive, but then you can't really like tell the story because you have to like sacrifice that attractiveness in order to um, have the character do stuff. It's, it's interesting that now this is coming full circle to, to back to Amy Wu is like, you want to be able to draw and tell stories about people whose proportions change over time, both emotionally and physically, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like Amy's uh, in Amy Wu, she goes through a lot of emotion I mean, she's happy and then she's sad and, you know, she's like frustrated. The original um, sketch that I did when she feels sad that she can't do the perfect bow, uh, they actually asked me to like uh, edit edit that because they were like, could you make her a little bit less sad? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Like, There's like, too like, much emotion. Yeah, and I was like, no, doesn't everybody kind of get this upset? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Wait, does it work? Process, yeah. Representation um, for ugly criers. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I kind of scaled it back and, you know, she's still sad, but she's not like, you know, this is the end of the world. I'm going to like jump off a cliff kind of sad. Um, so, so yeah, but, but um, I did take the idea of like pulling her face into, you know, distorting it to like exaggerate her emotions in that one. And like there was a lot of focus on Amy and her reaction to everything in the story. So yeah, you know, from the get go, it was like, well, Amy's cute, but Amy's not really meant to be like, you know, this this perfect um, vision of cuteness throughout the whole story because sometimes she's like, you know, she's not Dealing happy with some stuff. stuff. Yeah. You know, that's just part of human programming when we look at like, you know, a child that is. Um, you know, looking sad, we don't think like, oh, that child's cute. <laughs> we think like, oh, that child needs help or, you know, we want to like comfort them or something. Mm. Um, not having a, a good looking character in that sense, it, it just helps because then I can just focus on like, okay, how am I going to tell the story as best as I can with this character doing the best that they can for what needs to be said. Charlie, really happy to have you on and to have this conversation. Um, ha also happy to be talking in a month where you've got a couple of books coming out. Um, so can you let everybody know where to, where to find you and find your work? I know we've already plugged your husband, but where can we find you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, um, my website is charlenechua.com and 
I'm on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and uh, Charlene Draws. So it's the same username, it's just Charlene Draws. And uh, yeah, you know, it would be cool to like have new followers. Yeah, yeah, we'll put it all in the show notes. Yeah, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us. I'm really looking forward to doing it again. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really nice uh, speaking with both of you or, you know, having you listen to me. Yeah. (laughs) We loved uh, it. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. And I I hope that, you know, you and your listeners will find what I have to say interesting. For sure. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. You may contribute a verse. Thanks for listening this week. Find out more about us and our guests and the artists behind their cover and theme music at our websites, verse.show, renegenerate.com, and joshmoncourts.com. See you next verse. Bye.